Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. I'm here with uh, Max Linsky, my other co-host. Aaron is off today. Uh, hello, sir. How are you? I'm glad that Aaron is getting a well-deserved break. Who did you uh, have on the program this week? Uh, special guest, I would say, on the show this week is Jess Zimmerman. Jess is the editor-in-chief of the online literary outlet and publisher Electric Lit. She is also a prolific and brilliant essayist with a new collection out called Women and Other Monsters. She writes about feminism. She writes about literature and culture. She writes about things that happen online. Uh, and she writes about reimagining ancient Greek monsters. And we talked about all of that. Evan, you're burying the lead. She is also, Max, you, you may not know this, but uh, she is also my sister-in-law. Uh, I think it's a brave thing that you have done having so many members of your family on this podcast. I could tell you that if I had members in my family who wanted to come on this podcast, I would not have them on the show. But you're a bigger person than I am. You're a better person than I am. And uh, I'm so glad that you had your sister-in-law on to talk about these very sensitive and personal things that she writes about so very well. Well, dedicated listeners to the show will know that some years after the show started... I married into a family of successful writers, uh, all of whom would be on the show in uh, some sort of alternate universe anyway. So I, uh, I don't let these familiar connections stand in the way of having them on the show. And um, I should say one disclaimer for this episode, which is I think partly because Jess and I do know each other so well and I know her work so well, we may have skimmed over some of the uh, details of some of the essays that we talk about. So if you're not familiar with Jess's work, you should jump in the show notes. You should read something like um, Hunger Makes Me or A Midlife Crisis by Any Other Name. Those are both Hazlitt essays. Or just buy the book. Why not just buy the book and familiarize yourself a little bit? And that might help with the conversation. If you want to uh, skip some of the details and just get right to the heart of the gory, difficult family dynamics, you should do so with an email newsletter because you can do it by yourself and you can reach so many people and MailChimp is the absolute best way to send an email newsletter. Thanks to them for their support. And here's Evan with Jess Zimmerman. Jess, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you for having me. You are a unique guest for the podcast in that uh, you're probably the first one that the previous day I was standing with you on a playground uh, <laughs> watching my children run around. Too cold a day to stand around in the playground, but we'll just put that up front that we are in fact related by marriage. Yep. I did a terrible job of, of uh, looking after your children, by the way. Zaley absolutely bamboozled me into letting her climb on way more fences than I was. <laughs> and then I told her we were that if she didn't hurry up, we were going to take her to a mush restaurant where all of the food was mush. And uh, she ended up deciding that as long as she could get French fry mush, that was actually fine. 
So she's much smarter than I am. <laughs> well, this is what answer for exactly to yeah. <laughs> provide this kind of guidance. Um, but I also feel like vis-a-vis -vis your writing, um, although I am related to you, I'm not like a character in your writing. Like I don't appear in your writing so far. Um, but I will say that being close to you kind of enhances the curiosity that I would naturally have about how a lot of this works, particularly when it comes to essay writing, personal essay writing, mm -hmm. and how you go about it. So that's what I want to pursue. And I think the easiest way would be actually just to start with the book, because it intermingles these different kind of genres almost. So first, maybe can you describe in the most basic way what Women and Other Monsters is about? Yeah, absolutely. So it is a I think of it as personal essay, but in a lot of ways it is, like you said, a hybrid of personal and critical essay because my sort of animating force is not really writing about myself. It's writing about feminism and writing about the way that we culturally treat women and people that we see as women. And so what I'm doing in the book is looking at that through the lens of these mythological stories about monsters, which are part of... Greek mythology, which has really like trickled down into sort of every level of Western culture. There's a reason that a classics department in the sense of people who study Greek and Roman antiquity and the classics in the sense of the works that we think of as kind of the bedrock of Western culture use the same word. And so these are stories that come from antiquity, but that are still really kind of just the stories that we use to interpret the world. And so when some of those stories are about female monsters and many of the monsters that are in these stories are female or coded as female, those are kind of stories that we unconsciously apply to the ways that we think about women and sort of women adjacent people in our lives. You know, we still call people harpies. We call them gorgons. We talk about screen sirens. Um, and so like these narratives are still with us. Um, and it's just a way into sort of talking about the ways that that women are constrained. Do you remember when you first sort of hit on that comparison, when you first sort of looked at a monster from antiquity and said, actually, I see the way that this applies to the way women are treated today? It's, it's this is a really great question. I was trying to remember this recently. And the only thing that I can really remember is like making a Facebook post saying, hey, what are you guys' favorite female monsters? It's for a thing, which I almost certainly made at, you know, 3.30 a.m. And so I can't quite get back into can't call it back up. whatever mindset um, precipitated that. But I had written an essay um, for Hazlitt, which is a Canadian magazine that was about hunger and the ways that women are sort of discouraged from expressing hunger or even really feeling it or recognizing it in themselves. And that became the substrate of the essay about Charybdis in the book, who literally her origin story is that she was so hungry that she got turned into a monstrous whirlpool. Like she was just eating everything and she couldn't stop eating everything. And so that was probably the way in. And so I think then it just kind of expanded outward from there. And when you started making those connections had you thought about writing a book that was just personal essays? Like, would you ever have done that? Or were you waiting to kind of like have something else unlock it? I mean, I had certainly thought about doing it because it seems, I mean, it does seem easier to me because personal essay, as it turns out, is just like a mode that makes a lot of sense to me. It took me a long time to kind of get into that mode. I wrote a bunch of different other kinds of things. I was a journalist for a while. I was an opinion columnist for a while. And writing those things always felt very hard. But I definitely had a sense that if you write a book, it should be... I mean, and this is partly because, as you know, my mom is a science writer. And so I was like, oh, when you write a book, it's a book about popular science that, you know, translates some important concept for the masses. And I was like, oh, well, if I write a book, it'll be like a Mary Roach kind of book you know, heavily mm -hmm. reported, but also maybe a little bit voicey. And it didn't really occur to me that, you know, I could write an essay collection because that just felt too easy because they're all 5,000 words long. <laughs> you just have to write 5,000 words and write 5,000 words and write 5,000 words and just keep doing that until you have a book. Seems way easier. Um, so I honestly just felt like I was Says cheating. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, there's, right. So, so exactly. This is the thing, right? Is that it's not actually easier. It's just the mode that works well for me. Yeah. Um, but for a while, like that felt to me like cheating. And then I did get to a point where I was like, oh, the kind of writer that I am is an essayist. This is the size in which I think of, you know, stories. And I feel like it takes a lot of confidence to just put out an essay collection that's like the running theme of these essays is that they're by me and that's enough for you. And in fact, that is a perfectly valid way to create an essay collection and people do very, very successful books on that with that framework. But I kind of felt like, okay, well, I need to have something bigger, you know, some kind of through line, some kind of grand unifying theory that brings it all together. So when you write personal essays, Mm -hmm. there's like something you're doing for yourself in writing it. And then there's something you're doing for the reader. And I want to talk about both. But first, I want to talk about the reader. And you have a little preface where you sort of talk about who the book is for. Mm -hmm. And I want you to explain that. And, And to what extent are you trying to illuminate things versus trying to persuade people of something? Mm. I mean, for sure, a lot of the techniques that I use in writing were influenced by teaching rhetorical writing, which is sort of argument driven. Um, And, you know, I'm an editor in most of my life and anybody who has had a piece edited by me will tell you that, you know, I talk about arguments all the time. I talk about thesis. I talk about exigence which is just kind of like the so what factor and why anyone would care. Um, And all of this comes from rhetorical writing specifically and teaching rhetorical writing specifically. Um, And I think that that is a significant part of at least the finished product, that it is essentially a piece of argumentative writing or persuasive writing. Because I think in many ways, like any piece of writing that has a significant impact on the reader is going to be persuasive writing. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a way, there's not a lot of daylight between those two concepts for me. If you're writing about feminism, you know, illuminating something and persuading someone that it's important, that it's, you know, worth thinking about that it's good or it's bad are in many ways, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, well, let let me take an example. Like, you write about women's anger and the way it's constrained by these ways that people interpret it. And I can't remember which monster that is. Is that the Furies? It's the Furies, yeah. So is it your thinking when you're writing it? Do you sort of imagine a woman is reading that and seeing in it, aha, this is something I've experienced my whole life versus a man reading it and saying, oh, wait, is this something I've done to someone Mm. that I'm not realizing. Right. I mean, definitely in that sense, it would be the first person. I still think that that's sort of a work of persuasive writing because you do have to persuade someone to notice something and to care about something, even if it's something that they've seen in action. But yeah, I would say that sort of my proximal audience is for sure people who have already experienced this, but don't necessarily have the language to talk about it or sort of the narrative framework to see it in a larger context. Part of the reason that I talk at the beginning about who is this book for is because this is like an obsession of mine. Like I care, and this also comes from rhetorical writing. I care a lot about who the audience is, but it also is because, you know, the book is framed as being about women and it's certainly not written only to people who identify as women. And so I wanted to sort of talk about like, what does it mean when I say women? This is sort of a societal construct. It doesn't have a lot of respect for who you actually are, you know, it cares about what do we see as feminized. And that can also happen to people who identify as men and were raised as men and have never been other than men, or have never been seen rather as other than men, because there are certain personality traits or, you know, ways of speaking or ways of acting or things that you care about or you don't care about, that still kind of get feminized and the way that you're treated if you don't live up to expectations in that case, has a lot of overlap with kind of expectations that are put on women. And so so even if you're reading it and it's not super near to your experience, there will, I think, occasionally sometimes be a flash of, oh yeah, this has happened to me. 
and I recognize that it's happened, you know, at a time when I'm like not living up to sort of expectations of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I mean, the book is kind of about this uh, in terms of the personal part for you, but when do you feel like you began to realize that those boundaries were there? Pretty late for <laughs> for sort of a person who writes about feminism. And I think this is partly a generational thing. Like, I think a lot of the younger feminist writers were coming to it at about the same time that I was, which was a time when sort of the feminist blogosphere was really in abundance, but a much younger age. Actually, in the, the essay about anger and the furies, I quoted Lindy West talking about how she didn't really understand feminism until she was 19. And I was like, girl, 19? <laughs> like, <laughs> you're a prodigy. So it took it took me longer than that. Um, and it did really come from a place of sort of reading other people doing exactly this same thing that I think I'm trying to do, which is offering a framework, you know, a narrative for understanding the things that you experience and notice, but don't even always necessarily credit. It really helps to have somebody else sort of come in and say, no, actually, all of these are related and all of these are larger than your individual experience. Um, we just uh, published an essay on electric literature, actually, that was it was about a lot of things. But one of the things that it was about was watching I May Destroy You, in which one of the themes that happens in that show is that the main character has sex with the man who removes the condom in the middle. And the show shows her process of realizing that that's not that's not just like a thing that happened to her that she didn't like. That's actually a crime in Britain. Like that mm -hmm. is considered rape. So you see her like finding that out and then you see her acting on that knowledge. And the writer of this essay was like, this also happened to me. But until I saw that provided as part of this narrative, I didn't understand it as part of my story either. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And 
there is a lot of looking back at your own life in the collection of essays and there's an extreme level of vulnerability in some of these essays. How do you sort of put yourself in the space to write that way? Does it come naturally to you? Do you have a process? Yeah, it does. I mean, it does not come at all naturally to me. I, this part I do not like. And I think that what makes it possible is that I don't really think of it as confessional writing. Like to me, confessional writing is this specific mode where you're like, oh, let me sort of barf on you everything that I feel about everything. And the kind of goal is to express and to, you know, have catharsis. And you actually said at the beginning of this part of the conversation, you were like, oh, there's some aspect of this that's for you. And then there's some aspect of this for the audience. And there is very rarely an aspect of it that I see as being for me. Like I Hmm. don't, I don't need to dig (laughs) into this stuff. First of all, already happened. I was there. So I don't, (laughs) I don't need to tell myself about it. And like, I do not like medically, emotionally, psychologically need to be reading my live journal from when I was 20. Like, I don't need that in my life. So I'm only doing it because, like, I feel like it will make a connection or it will illuminate something. It will. And I think of it actually as being a lot like being at a party and someone sort of says something that happened to them and they're, you know, they're confused about it or they're struggling with it or they're working through it or whatever. And you say, oh, let me tell you about what my experience was with that. And maybe this will sort of clear things up for you. You know, you're Hmm. sort of trading anecdotes in that way, except that in this case, of course, the reader is the silent person, but you're still kind of saying, oh, let me offer up something that happened to me that was similar. And, you know, the more personal stuff is maybe you've had way more drinks at that party um, (laughs) than other stuff, but it's still kind of in the same mode. Like it's sort of service anecdotes and, uh, so I've written this up, but I haven't published it anywhere yet. But um, but a friend came to me recently and said, and she was she was writing a memoir. So her book is organized as here's my entire life. And she said, I feel like the editor is trying to get me to do more like telltales. And so so what I ended up saying to her, and again, I probably had had a couple of drinks at this party. Uh, It was not a party. It was a late night email. Um, (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, when people say that they want you to be vulnerable, what I think of it as is those cows that have a hole in their side that you, you know, these, they have a cannula. Yeah. It's a sort of a rubber rim around literally a hole that goes into the side of the cow. And they do this like at agricultural schools and you can literally reach into the cow. The cow is alive? The cow is alive. The cow is fine. They don't care. They, they like don't react to this at all. And it goes into one of the cow's four stomachs. So it's a very, it's actually a very sort of circumscribed area of the cow's digestive tract that you can access here. But it is an extreme vulnerability, right? It's a puncture like right to the center. But it is done in a way that doesn't hurt the cow. And it's done for a reason. Right. There is a reason that scientists would want to be able to access the rumen. They can find out a lot of stuff about cow digestion by being able to just kind of reach in there. And so to me, like that kind of surgical tactical vulnerability is actually both more useful and more of sort of a service to the reader and also in a way more self-protective than a kind of like, oh, let me just like open up this cow and just cow guts flying everywhere, (laughs) you know, which nobody wants. But at the same time, you can't just be like, here is my beautiful cow, look at its digestion, and you don't have a hole in the cow and people are just staring at the side of a cow. Right. Uh, (laughs) Now, that's all I want to talk about. I want to go Google pictures of this situation because I can't quite imagine (laughs) it. But the cow in that case, like, you say they like they don't care. It doesn't yeah. bother them. And yeah. there's a parallel there in that it feels like you're writing about things that are vulnerabilities, at least about the way you used to be, like how you feel about your body, how you feel about relationships. Like mm-hmm. all of these things are woven in to stories of monsters and how women are made to feel like monsters. But also is your feeling like you already have the armor to put those things out there or putting them out there as a kind of like act of defiance, like fuck you, this doesn't bother me. It's not, it's not 
quite either of those things. Um, I think it's I think it's closer to the second as like an aspirational approach. But I would say that I mean it does like it does bother me to a certain extent, and like like I do care, and I, and I recognize that like the vulnerabilities are vulnerable. It is it's like if everybody can just reach into your stomach, that's freaky. That's a little freaky. Um, mm-hmm. But my goals are sort of to be. And this is kind of where the where the cannulated cow metaphor comes from. My goals are to be kind of exactly as vulnerable as I feel is necessary. And that's not necessary to me. That's necessary to the observer, to the reader or the cow scientist. So it's kind of like, okay, well, if this is out there, it's out there because in order to make the larger point that I wanted to make, which is not for me, it's for you. Like I had to give this level of access. And so it's less that I'm like, oh, I'm putting this out there and fuck you. I don't care. And it's more like, oh, I'm putting this out there so that you can hopefully at some point say, fuck you, I don't care what you think of me. But so it is like it does kind of feel more more strategic than cathartic for sure. There's also I feel like there's woven into the book. There's this like hyper modern and the ancient like Mm -hmm. I think of you as a person of the Internet, not of the Internet, but like a person who knows the Internet much better than me, a person who I would ask, like, what's going on with this thing on the Internet? Please explain it to me. And so I wanted to go back a bit because I know you were like early to the Internet. And I feel like that may have been a part of the writer you became. So when did you come to the Internet and what form was it when you did? So I got my first personal email account, I think, in 1994 which I don't know if it's early. It might be early, but I was 14. So like for a lot of the people who are writing now, who are sort of that crucial bit younger than me, the idea of, I think, not having an email address until you're 14 would be inconceivable. So in that sense, I was kind of like early to the internet and also late to the internet. Before that, I might've, like, I think we might've shared one. You could reach me if you emailed my dad. Um, my dad was an academic, so he had an email address like pretty early, but I got one through my school cause I went to a math science computers magnet. And so what we had was a VAX account, which like doesn't even, I don't even like really a VAX is a giant computer basically. And you would have an account on, on this dedicated computer. And then we later got Unix accounts and I spent, you know, most of my, instead of text messaging, we'd use this program, why talk. So people who all had accounts on this same Unix computer could use YTalk to talk to each other. And it was just like, like green on black text. And it would split the terminal window into however many boxes there were of people you were talking to. So if you were talking to more than like three people at a time, you would see like maybe a couple of lines of text and then it would scroll off because they were all these tiny little boxes. Um, This is how I learned to touch type because if I wasn't looking at the screen, I would miss things. And you would also like see pe- what people were typing as they were typing it. So there wasn't the opportunity, like you had to be watching just in case they thought better of it and like deleted uh, it. And you had to have like seen what they were saying before they stopped saying it. So, I mean, how this sort of influences me as a writer, it definitely does. It might take like more sort of consideration to to figure out exactly how this is actually part of my next project is going to be about the old internet. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, partly you're writing, but also did you, were you a person who found like a social world on the internet that you felt was different and better than what you were getting in, in life? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, um, I think insofar as the internet contributed to sort of me as a writer, sort of being a person who existed in text was a very important part of my teens and also my early twenties, at least, you know, and I would occasionally, you know, I would have like a dream that I was hanging out with my IRC friends and we were all like together in a diner, but also we were all typing, you know, even in the dream. (laughs) So like I had these like very heavily sort of text-based word-based relationships from really the age at which you're doing all of your sort of formative social stuff. Uh, And then there's a, there's a parallel thing that I happen to know about, which you referenced to glancingly before, which is that your mother being a writer um, Mm -hmm. who wrote about science and health and at different times had a column and 
would write about her own experiences and those of her children. You were a person who was written about. And yeah. I'm interested to know how that felt and factored into your own kind of eventual drive to become a writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it probably honestly like kept me from being a writer for a while, or at least from being a personal writer. Um, hmm. Cause I, d I did not especially like it. And I did eventually get to a point where I was like, okay, stop putting me in things. I did not like being kind of pinned down in text in a way that was filtered through someone else's perspective. And my reaction to that was not really, oh, I'm going to write about myself through my own perspective. It was, oh, it sucks to be written about and I'm not going to do it either. And it was really, you know, it was actually just when existing on the internet kind of flipped over from having a live journal to having a blog. I think that was probably the thing that did it because that made being a social person who existed on the internet and who was social on the internet, that went from being kind of a turned inward situation to a publishing adjacent situation. You know, live journal, you're all kind of looking at each other. You're in a huddle. You're looking inward. You can lock things. And then a lot of the people that I was blogging with when I was, you know, doing sort of early blog stuff had kind of plucked me from live journal and said, I like how you write will you come and write for this blog? And then that became sort of a public facing thing. And I kind of slid into writing in that way. Was there a moment when you sort of realized it where you said, oh, wait, I'm doing the thing. I'm doing the thing that uh, I had resisted. That I, that I legitimately tried not to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for a while, like, and this is embarrassing, but I feel like I can say it because it's hard to find these things anymore. For a while, I was writing for ExoJane. And I definitely had a moment where I was like, even as a blogger, like I was very kind of played a lot of things close to the vest and I was not very vulnerable and I was not very self-disclosing. And there was a real hunger for it. And people were like asking for more of that. And I was trying to sort of learn how to do it, um, but it wasn't a natural mode for me. And then I was writing for ExoJane and I was doing it because you know, in my family, writing is a job and they had offered me some money. So like, <laughs> like, but I was kind of like, oh, I'm I'm actually writing for the part of the Internet that is most famous for this, like, really over the top confessional self-disclosure. What exactly does that mean about me? Um, which is not a question that I really have an answer for. I didn't sit super comfortably in the sort of exogene universe. Uh-huh. Which was, as you say, was extremely confessional and they would almost, yeah. I mean, I feel like their reputation is they would almost coax people into like exposing more and more about themselves because that was more and more traffic, regardless of whether or not it had some value to readers or whatnot, or especially to the writer. Yeah, they were definitely part of what I think has been called sort of the personal essay industrial complex. And they kind of wanted like the worst thing that had happened to you because, you know, and which is for a multitude of reasons, not all of which were crass. There is certainly the aspect where it gets more attention, um, but there is also the aspect where there was like a very strong community around Exogene, and it was because I think people felt spoken to. These very specific, you know, young white women basically <laughs> felt spoken to. Yeah. So I do think there's some value in that. But once I kind of, kind of fell into this mode of being able to tap into personal writing. Then I started thinking about like, okay, well, what are, what are other things that I can do with this? Like, what's a way to, to kind of elevate this from just here's the thing that happened to me, right? Because that's kind of the exogene signature, right? Is it happened to me? And I was like, okay, well, and then what? And then who cares? Which is going back to exigence, right? Like it happened to me, so what? Well, that takes me to the the editing part of it, because I feel like you're known as a particularly generous and expert editor of personal essays. And that, in my experience, is a very hard type of editing to do. And I wanted to know, like, so you've described a little bit of what you're aiming for, but what do you do when you get a piece? Is there a process by which you try to start and arrive at that point? Yeah. Um, I mean, it does, like, I do look at them a lot of the time through a rhetorical framework. So I want to know, like, that I can express what the point of this piece is and what it's about, even if it's very, very beautifully written. 
And it can be tempting if something is beautifully written to say, oh, well, it doesn't really have to have a a specific like thesis that could be expressed in a sentence. It's just a vibe. But I'm like obsessed with uh, with thesis. Like I want I just want to know what the take home message is. So that's definitely something that I look at if I get a very personal piece is I want to make sure that the parts of it that are personal are there for a reason and that they're doing something. And that it's not just sort of, you know, I needed to work through this, so I put it on the page. You know, I was just having a conversation with somebody about the about the phrase slaughter your darlings. Or uh-huh. I guess most people say kill your darlings, but we're just very bloodthirsty in my family. <laughs> and we were talking about how, like, I think a lot of people misunderstand it and just think that it means, like, don't be precious about your writing. Um, and what it actually means, or the way that I was trained to understand it, is that, like, the parts that you love the most are probably the parts that aren't doing anything for people who aren't you. Hmm. And like, you have to be willing to get rid of not just any particular part of the essay at any time, but like specifically the parts that you feel especially committed and connected to. So on the one hand, I want to make sure that people aren't just putting things in either because they needed to work through it or because like they feel that they owe it to the reader to essentially be like vulnerable for no reason. I've definitely had people, you know, write essays that are about assault or some other kind of trauma and they sort of stick their own experience in there. And sometimes I'll say, you know, you don't have to disclose this. Like Mm -hmm. this stands without your personal experience. Like think about whether this is what you want to be writing about. And, you know, on the flip side, you also want to make sure that people are giving you enough So, you know, I encounter a lot of writers who are people like me who would love to be vague and would love to, like, say the word this with no, like, obvious antecedent and not sort of take you through the actual experience, but just kind of gesture towards it. And you do really have to balance both of those things. Like, the self-disclosure has to be there for a reason, but it also has to be there. And a lot of the time I'll say you don't necessarily need to say more about what happened to you. You know, what Mm -hmm. you can say more about is, like what happens, right? But you have to spend more time in that feeling. Actually, the essay that I was talking about, about I may destroy you, this kind of happened. Like she sort of gestured at, oh, I made this shift from thinking of myself as a person who this thing happened to, to understanding myself as one of the, what is it? One in three women who's experienced sexual assault. So that changed my narrative. And I was like, you don't have to give us the details of the experience. You can keep that to yourself but we need to hear more about that shift in your self-identity. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like you have to give people, are people sort of very aware of the way that these things happen on the internet now? Or do you feel like you have to find yourself saying to them, if this goes viral, like you have to think about what's going to happen to you harassment wise or just exposure wise? Yeah. I mean, I feel like most people are either thinking about that too much or not enough. And like, I have one go-to writer who is also a memoirist and Sarah Kerchak, she wrote a memoir about like her experience growing up with autism. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is that like, it is petrifying for us to think about for every single line, we're thinking, how is this going to play? How are people going to misinterpret this? Is this going to be the thing? Oh, my friend, Angela Chen, also whose book Ace came out last year, which is about asexuality. So she is a reporter, but she also put her personal experience in here. And she did this too. Like we sort of talked, I don't know if I'm telling tales out of school, but, um, but I think it's, it reflects well on both of them and on me. And at the same time, badly that we're all like, we're thinking about this all the time. Like, how are people going to see this is this going to hurt people essentially um which is a good instinct but it can become something that really gets on top of you and then there also are people who like if their goal is to write something either for cathartic reasons or for you know artistic reasons they aren't really thinking beyond what am i putting on the page like either you know think about whether you want to be disclosing this or you know occasionally someone will kind of write themselves into a corner where they wind up making a claim that like, I don't think they want to stand by. And then I'll say, okay, what you're essentially saying here is X, Y, Z. I don't think you mean that. I think you just like wound up here by following a path. So let's kind of like walk back out of that <laughs> and figure out what you actually want to say, because I do not think this will land well. And what what's your experience of when one of your essays has sort of 
become more popular. Like you did that essay for the Toast about emotional labor, which I feel like went pretty wide. I don't know. It was a while ago, so I don't know the actual like uh, relative today's virality, what that would be, but it felt <laughs> at the time like it went very wide. Um, yeah. And what is your experience of that? In that case, I actually learned a lot from the response to it um, because I wrote about kind of the amount of psychological work that women are sort of asked to do in relationships and in friendships that is not really seen as work. And I kind of made the comparison to the way that um, that housework isn't seen as work because it's seen as just like a thing that women do that we're not supposed to expect any kind of recompense or recognition for. And it got picked up on Metafilter, which is kind of one of the last remaining parts of the old internet. It's the um, last great social network. It's it really, the last like non-awful social network. Like sometimes it's awful, but most of the time it's not awful. And most of the time it's really, really good. And the conversation on Metafilter got like several thousand comments. And a lot of those were people thinking through this topic in a deeper way than I had and sort of talking about how, you know, it's not just that we're expected to kind of provide free therapy. It's also that we're expected to notice the things that need to be done in the household, you know, like as kind of the corollary to housework, not just do the housework, but like keep track of the housework and notice what needs to be done, delegate. There was a lot of conversation about like partners who would say, oh, well, I'll do that if you ask me to. And then it's like, well, but I shouldn't have the burden of asking, you know, mm-hmm. and also sort of keeping track of a couple's social life and keeping track of birthdays and do just sort of all of these things that are expected and that are not sort of recognized as effort. But the sort of hive mind of the Metafilter thread had way more to me interesting and subtle things to say than I had said in the essay. Like that was just kind of a kickoff. And that was actually like kind of another example of like, I didn't really think through my own stuff by writing it out. I sort of found a way to recontextualize my own experience by reading people's response to this piece. And usually if a piece goes viral, you don't, you don't get that like really sort of constructive response where the sort of gaps in the piece are shored up by other people adding to it and talking to each other and supporting each other and like putting each other's lives into context. So that was, I think, an unusually positive experience. Yeah, that's that's definitely not, that seems like a, an exception to yeah. the, what I thought you were going to, I thought it was going to be more in the direction <laughs> of like one million reply guys being like, you want to be paid for being a yeah. good friend and i don't understand i don't really understand why that didn't happen right and i think uh. it was just because like it was on the toast and then it was on metafilter because like the original piece like kind of deserved that response like that i didn't i hadn't really thought through no like no i don't want to be paid for being a good friend and i think i talked about that a little bit but like it was coming from this sort of like very capitalist mindset that like oh if something is labor we should be paid for it and like i could really i could stand to rethink that um so I'm actually really surprised that I didn't get a response more like that. And that's what I'm always bracing for. Like if I sort of game everything out to how are people going to respond to this, I'm always expecting that kind of worst case scenario. And then sometimes that doesn't happen. I mean, audience plays in a lot here. Like that went out to a sympathetic audience. I got way more, you know, when I was writing for The Guardian, I got way more people just being like, how dare you? Do you feel in any general way that the online personal essay has like evolved to a different place than it was five years ago or 10 years ago, either from the business perspective, like the essay industrial complex that you mentioned, or from the stylistic perspective? Yeah. I mean, there are fewer and fewer places that publish them because for a while when there was this personal essay boom, publications were sort of creating first person verticals. And a lot of those have come back down. So what we're seeing that's interesting to me, places like Catapult and Hazlitt and I hope Electric Literature is finding a way to like marry the essay, which, you know, as sort of a literary form, right, as a creative nonfiction form with a sort of broader, more internet focused or internet optimized kind of subject matter and framing. 
and this is something that like I try to do at Electric Lit. Like I also want to put up things that are beautifully written or especially interesting or, you know, that are elevating new writers. But then I still want to be, you know, talking to an internet audience and giving them kind of the the headline and the framing that makes them understand like, oh, this is this is relevant and important to you and this is worth um, you know, stopping your scrolling for. How do you suss out what that is? Like, where does that understanding come from? Um, I mean, partly from just being way too online. So I actually, like, literally right before we started this recording, I had the meeting that I have every week with our social media editor where we basically say, what are people talking about? And what do we have that relates to that? So, of course, today we were like, okay, everybody wants to talk about um, the Meghan Markle interview what do we have on, you know, dysfunctional families? What do we have on royalty? So some of that is just sort of like keeping tabs on the zeitgeist, but also like thinking about what's a way to take sort of one step conceptually larger. So we had a big success recently with an essay about the new Cruella film because I was, you know, on Twitter enough to be like, okay, everybody is riffing on the trailer of this film that like, is the like humanizing backstory of Cruella DeVille. <laughs> and everybody was like, this is really like passing lightly over the fact that she wants to skin puppies to make a coat out of. And I basically got together with one of my sort of go-to writers and was like, can you do something that is about this like urge to humanize Cruella? Well, I sort of said on Twitter, like who's going to give me a good pitch about like Cruella and Maleficent or whatever, however you pronounce the Sleeping Beauty evil fairy that also got her like backstory and wicked which is the wicked witch of the west's humanizing backstory and cersei which is a wonderful novel that is the humanizing backstory of cersei from the odyssey and so elise got in touch and said oh i think this is connected to sort of ideas of women's purity and like we can't countenance a female villain and we have to give her some kind of sort of mitigating trauma or you know reason or righteousness so i was like yes great write about that we turned it around really quick because this was something that people were talking about, but it was something that like, I kind of wanted to use that as a way in to talk about something larger. Yeah. Well, it's very of your, your book to, to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's a monster. I know. I was like, I should probably write this myself, but <laughs> at least came with, came to it with a lot of, of background information. So. Well, coming back to the book, I'm going to ask a couple other things that I was very interested in how you put this together. So one is just like, You've got a bunch of different monsters mm -hmm. and um, I was fascinated by the ones you chose, but also like, how do you order such a thing? Like what the order feels very natural to me as the reader, but of course it feels that way once it's done. But how do you pick these disparate things and put them together? So I, I feel weird that I keep being like, we had a good essay on electric lit about this. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not actually just trying to shill for electric lit, but we did actually have an essay last week about ordering a poetry collection using mixtape rules. And this poet actually like ordered her poetry collection by assigning like a song to each poem and then making a mix and then putting the poems in that order. Huh. Um, and I didn't do exactly that, but I did express it to my editor as, oh, we're going to use mixtape rules, which was, you know, I wanted to come out of the gate with one that like I knew everybody like we, the first one is about Medusa. People really responded well to the sort of shorter version of that on the Internet. So I was like, okay, well, you got to start with one that people like, so they'll keep reading. But then you have to, like, kick it up a little bit. Like, you can't then have the energy drop after that first one. So then the next one is one that, like, I particularly like. Then, you know, if you have some weak ones, you, like, hide them kind of in the middle. But you have to, but you can't go, like, directly from, like, a super high energy one to a super low energy one. So I really felt like it was very, very similar to putting a mix together. Were there extra chapters? Are there chapters that didn't make it in that you wrote? There are chunks that didn't make it in, not whole chapters. Because um, mm -hmm. I am like a very, very, very like edit as you go kind of person. Um, so I am not, I'm not one of those people who like writes 100,000 words and then has to cut it down afterwards. Like I, I am like fine tuning every sentence as I go. So it was, it was hard enough to like write all of the stuff that like make it long enough, basically. Um mm -hmm. But there were chunks that I took out because I was like, this isn't actually serving the piece. And I am actually, this is also going to sound like a plug and it is a plug, but I am going to put some of those like slaughtered darlings 
on my newsletter for subscribers, but not for free. All of the like newsletter essays are for free. And I'm like, no, you have to pay me if you want to see stuff, <laughs> stuff that I didn't want to publish. This stuff is not published for a reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you talked about not loving being written about when you mm -hmm. were younger. And it's a bit different because you were young and you didn't have any choice in the matter. And eventually you said you didn't want that to happen anymore. Right. But there are people who are written about. I mean, you write very eloquently and in great depth about your marriage and what happened there and, and leaving your marriage. And did you feel in the same way? I mean, no one's named, but that it was should be their choice whether to be included or it should be your choice whether to write about that. It's your experience. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a really like live question for anybody who writes about themselves, right? It's like, how much of that is your story? How much of the parts of your story that like overlap with other people are yours to tell and how much should people have input on? And in that particular case, it was tricky because like, this is a person who like didn't hurt me, who didn't really hurt me and it like didn't do anything wrong, right? Like it's very easy if you're writing about someone who was a harmful influence on your life to be like, well, I don't care what they think. So I'm going to say whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And it's only my, it's actually only my perspective that matters. And it's a lot trickier when it's someone who you don't want to necessarily like give them veto power, but you also don't want to accidentally make them the villain. So the way that I handled that and I don't, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it's definitely the right way. It was just what I did is just worked hard to like, make sure that what I was talking about was not like not putting words in anyone else's mouth. So not talking about sort of what anyone else felt, not talking about, well, okay. So we're anyone else we're talking about my ex-husband. Like I didn't want to say here are ways that he did bad things and I did good. You know, like I didn't, I just didn't like, I wanted to keep it focused entirely on like, this was a psychological drama that was happening for me that I am telling you about for reasons. And also he was there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to make him like a character too much because at that point I would have to either kind of make a lot of excuses for myself because I was the one who was behaving badly or I would have had to ventriloquize him a lot. And I didn't want to do either of those things. Um, I mean, I didn't want to like spend a lot of time on myself as a villain, but I will say that it is really important to not try to come off well in personal writing in general. So like, like, I didn't want to, like, spend a lot of time, like, flagellating myself just so that I could sort of put this story in there. Um, so my my sort of way of dealing with that was to be as kind of forthright and candid as possible about what was going on with me and then recognize that this was a thing that affected him, but not try to sort of talk about, like, what he did or what he felt about it. So the, and then the kind of flip side of that is that people that you know whether him or in your family are going to read this book. Uh, some of us already have, and I don't, <laughs> I don't want to in, over index for this, but like the, there's a chapter on uh, Lamia. Is that how you pronounce the monster? Sure. I, actually, the... I, I keep meaning to ask, I have a friend who's a classics professor and I keep meaning to be like, can you just give me like a, <laughs> a pronunciation guide for five-year-olds so that I make sure that I don't embarrass myself, but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> I mean, I would say Lamia, but I might be wrong. Okay. So this is the the child-eating monster, mm -hmm. which leads into and is woven in with a discussion of whether or not you want to have children mm -hmm. and, and the pressures that are put on women around that and how you can kind of never, you can never go the right direction. Like there's always, you always fall down no matter what you choose. Yeah. And I think as a person who knows you and is close to you, like it's definitely the case that I have perhaps mused aloud to your sister, like, um, does Jess want to have kids? And here you have provided a <laughs> multi-thousand word uh, exegesis on this topic. But as you're doing it, is there any consideration that like all these people around you are also going to read it? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, that was one that I did. I mean, I let, well, actually, I let my husband read the entire book, but that was one that I was particularly like, okay, you have to... <laughs> Like, and this was like, none of this was new to him. It was all stuff that we had talked about, but I was like, you need to look at the way that this is going to be treated and make sure that it's okay with you. I mean, in a way like this is sort of putting me on blast because I did actually mention Sam in that essay and I don't think I ran it by her, 
but but it wasn't you know it wasn't negative or anything it was just like you guys had a child and then you had another child that's um but i I fact check true that that (laughs) that checks out but yeah so like don't necessarily listen to me because i'm not always the best at like checking with people to make sure it's okay (laughs) if i mention them but in a way what you're asking is is a lot more interesting than that which is not just should you ask people if it's okay if you put them in the piece but like how do you feel about people essentially having this like window into your thought process that is like having like a whole difficult conversation downloaded straight into their brain but they're not actually being allowed to take part in it and it's that's in a lot of ways better for for me like if i like i would rather have the conversation that way because i have a lot more control mm-hmm. um i suppose it might be unnerving for someone else to read it you know what this is a way in which being someone who has been social on the internet for so long and who has really never been social not on the internet who doesn't really have like a great way of interacting with humans that's not text mediated but like it makes me think that like that makes this kind of a new idea on me like oh how would people feel about finding out what's going on with me by reading a big chunk of text about it i don't know is there another way to talk to people like <laughs> like that's just literally always like (laughs) that's how people find out my mental state and that just seems normal um (laughs) well i guess my follow-up question would be i mean in some ways it's actually it's amazing because then people can learn something with depth and nuance that's just it would be there'd be a very long conversation at the very least to have to really get to those places that you get to in these essays but then also there's a question of and this might be true even for readers that when you do events or do readings like that people have this knowledge about you and how much are they supposed to be sort of upfront about the things that they now know about yeah. you like and feel familiar with those things in a way yeah. that they wouldn't otherwise i mean i will say that so far when i've interacted with people and i haven't interacted with people about that essay very much but i did write more publicly by which i mean it's on the internet and not shut up in a book about leaving my marriage and i have had like some really great interactions with people about that who basically said like this inspired me to <laughs> to oh, wow. leave um which like i guess i should feel bad about sort of being a home wrecker but it's always people who have said like i really needed to and this kind of gave me permission and in that essay i sort of talk about a piece of writing that did that for me So like, that's a really valuable thing to be told. And that makes me think that people are people who don't know me or don't know me very well are interacting with it in the way that, that I hope and intend, which is seeing themselves reflected in it in some way, not reading it for like some kind of understanding of me, right? Because I'm really, I'm truly just there as like an example, but reading it for some kind of understanding of themselves. I think a lot of what's, to me, powerful about your writing is that you are often interrogating disappointment with yourself. Hmm. Like you're not trying to necessarily cure it or ignore it, but just to kind of like peruse it and sort of say like, what what is behind this? And you put this question, I think it's in the book and not an essay, where you say like, I'm often asking myself something, I'm paraphrasing here, what would my life have been like if I wasn't fundamentally ashamed of myself? Yeah. And... I'm interested in how much of that is a lifelong project or something that you feel like you're moving through to a different place. I guess it is a lifelong project to find a relationship to my sort of natural negativity and self-deprecation that does not annoy people because that is an unbelievably annoying set of personality traits to have. And so like in a way, like if you have that, set of personality traits, I highly recommend becoming a writer of personal essay. Because like I said, like you can't try to come off well in a personal essay. It's very good to be willing to be the dummy and to look at all the ways in which like, you know, you've historically not understood things and you still don't understand them and you're not doing any better than you were. Um, And I often feel like my goal is to make, you know, the reader feel like they can do one step better 
you know, so like uh, that I'm the person kind of being like, it's too late for me. You go on, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like, and I do like kind of end a lot of the essays that way where I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to figure out how to instantiate this in my own life, but you know, the reader maybe can kind of learn from that and stand on my shoulders and go, you know, see a little further. So I think that's a useful mode to be able to have in personal writing so that you don't come off self-aggrandizing and you don't come off, you know, didactic, which is something I worry about all the time that it'll sound like I'm lecturing people. It's easier to not sound like you're lecturing people if you're being very clear that you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Or like, like, I feel like I know what I'm talking about, but I don't, I'm not great at it always. You know, I don't always know what I'm doing. And so it's a useful mode in personal writing. And it's also just like personal writing is a useful mode in sort of self-interrogation and being over like hyper-focused on your own faults. If you're going to be that kind of person, you might as well make hay out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is kind of related to that, but I, uh, a theme in your work is definitely that the world is bad and getting worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you feel like, is there anything that could shake you of that? And is that, do you feel like that's fundamental to what you write about? It is like in, in a sense that it's always something that I'm grappling with. I think Um, I don't want to always come down on a negative or like cynical note, but again, like this is an annoying personality trait that I have. And so it's going to sort of be in there in some way. And so I have the option where I can write and say, well, the world is bad and getting worse, but we have to find a way to like kind of get through it together or the world is bad and getting worse. And I don't really know what to do about that. And I actually tend a little more towards the first one. My friend, Sarah Miller is the best person I know at doing the second one. She is like a perfect writer of like, everything is terrible. And that is the place that I have landed in this essay and I have not leavened it at all. And yet you are very happy that you read it and maybe you laughed. And I can't always do that. I think it's a very, very special skill to have. So I often feel like there's some kind of, like that it it's incumbent on me to find some way to not just leave people crying in the bathtub, you know? Um, <laughs> because also that's not a very useful or functional, then it's like, okay, well, what are you hoping that people leave with? And what are you hoping that they then go on and do with whatever they gained from reading your writing? And I don't want them to, you know, dissolve, or at least not, not only. So you do want to kind of galvanize people and you do want to feel like, you know, at minimum, you're kind of inspiring people to, to like rethink things or to do like something sort of proactive, even if you're not inspiring them to optimism in any way. So I do try to like keep from at least like falling into the abyss in that sense. But at the same time, like, objectively (laughs) shit bad Uh, so and i think that like a lot of things that are bad it would be easy for me to ignore right because i am white i am like relatively financially stable i am educated i live in you know an industrialized nation you know i have a desk job i am working from home right now i'm generally not ground by a lot of sort of the gears of toxic capitalism and so I have, in a sense, a responsibility to keep that in the corner of my eye and to sort of incorporate it into wherever it is that I decide to land with an essay. All right, Jess. Well, you know there's only one way that this episode can end. (laughs) Yes? I love you, Jess. I love you too, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) I love you too. This was really, really fun. And I guess the other inevitable way that it can end is that i'll see you at family zoom on saturday <laughs> yeah yeah this is this is it'll be a mere temporary pause although yeah. the conversation is a bit different but totally different yeah <laughs> that is it for this week's long form podcast i'm your co-host evan ratliff thanks jess Thanks for coming on the show. That was Jess Zimmerman. The name of her book, which you should go by, is Women and Other Monsters. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Susan Peterson. 
And our sponsor is MailChimp. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.